0: Welcome to On The Money, where you can find out anything and everything to do with finance, business and the economy. On The Money is broadcast live from the studios of Radio 2 SER nationwide on the Community Radio Network. I'm Roderick Chambers and coming up on the program...
1: They've been able to develop a hand sanitizer that, in addition to alcohol, also contains um, algae, which is really beneficial, especially for people who are constantly using hand sanitizer because it's great to help um, protect and moisturize your skin.
0: One thing that we've all been short of during this pandemic crisis is hand sanitizer, and the government has been urging companies to find ways of producing products to fill these shortages. UTS's deep green biotech hub has been partnering with the company Purify, itself a brainchild of the UTS Accelerator program, to ramp up production of sanitizer using algae. Also on the program...
2: The government has brought in since Monday to pay each family daycare educator 50% of their maximum subsidy rate, which is for family daycare at the moment $11.10 per hour per child, that's what they were getting a day, and the parents were paying that
0: gap. It appears that the New South Wales State Government is stepping up to plug a gap in childcare centre funding, but with the rush that the Federal Government is in to save the childcare sector, it puts in high relief the different structures that are being run in each state. All this and more coming up on On The Money. First, Prime Minister Scott Morrison was conferring with South Korean President Moon just a few days ago, and the subject? Coronavirus. South Korea was early on a victim of this terrible pandemic, with infection levels spreading rapidly, initially due to the mobility of an evangelical group who were gathering together in large, easy-to-infect groups. But the response was swift and decisive and they were one of the first countries to see daylight and in the level of infections i asked tim harcourt the airport economist who was in korea when the pandemic first started why scott morrison was talking with president moon now
3: well south korea and australia um are pretty close on international matters you could say they are soulmates if you think about apec uh when bob was prime minister when you think of the global financial crisis uh was really uh, Kevin Rudd and the uh, South Koreans that got uh, uh, the G20 and the finance minister's meetings in her gear. So uh, they've been a great ally for Australia, particularly uh, at international economic diplomacy.
0: And we've had a free trade agreement for a couple of years now. How's that going?
3: It's been very successful. I mean, uh, obviously, one of our top four trading partners, South Korea is very energy and food dependent. Uh, on Australia and at the same time they're a great source of uh, technology and investment uh, in the Australian economy being a pretty reliable and stable ally and, um, and, and business partner if you like.
0: And I suppose uh, when we're looking for PPE equipment South Korea is probably one of the places where we could get a lot of stuff.
3: Uh, yeah well it's done very well uh, and uh, in some ways um, you know we've, we've of course been looking very closely at, at Wuhan and China but um, the nations that have been successful uh, South Korea Singapore uh, and Taiwan all good friends of Australia.
0: and I think uh, one of the secrets that South Korea had was to test absolutely everybody and do you, do you think that we are going to sort of go down that path?
3: well we' we're, we're, we're sort of up at their levels not quite at their levels but we're in you know, in the upper ranges of most countries in terms of testing, mean, they closed it down pretty quickly, I was all set to do the airport of Columbus, South Korea, when they, uh, when they you know, shut down flights very early in the piece. Uh, so they had been an early mover. And they say that nations uh, who have acted, who've gone big, acted early and kept the lights on seem to be coming out of the crosses quite well.
0: When this happened, were you, was there a lot of uh, sort of angry people going, oh, this is a knee-jerk reaction in the airport lounge?
3: Not really. I mean, people took it pretty seriously in South Korea. They you know did. I mean? Okay. Uh, I mean, this is uh, you know, this is, this is a matter of life and death. Most business travel is not life and death, so uh, I think people have taken it in their stride, and uh, you can always go next year.
0: What are we likely to see then from our government in terms of getting equipment? So, do you think they're going to take more of a lead on this and and uh, start talking bilaterally to other nations?
3: Yeah, I think so. I think for the short-term dealing of the crisis, it's very important that we do so. But also, we've got to look at our partnerships in terms of uh, foreign investment and trade in the future. You know, we're going to be a lot more self-sufficient nation, and we're never going to want to rely on one large trading partner for foreign investment, particularly medical technology, until we're looking for alternatives, and South Korea is a pretty good candidate.
0: And just thinking about some of the problems the airlines have been facing, do you think that Australia should prop up Virgin, for instance?
3: I think there's going to be some sort of public ownership of airlines again. Uh, Obviously, Qantas did pretty well for 75 years as a public-owned entity, Uh, so having some sort of public investment in them again is not going to be a problem. And, well, Virgin, you need a two-airline system. Uh, I don't know to what extent their parents... Uh, can tip in some more money. I think they probably can, but there's probably a bit of positioning going going on because uh, people always try and get someone else to pay who they can.
0: And when do you think we might be flying again?
3: Next year, provided they find a, a vaccine within the next three months. Uh, if that happens, then I think I think that's quite quite feasible. But I'm not one of these people wanting people to relax on a lot of the provisions that we're putting because they've been very successful. We're saving lives. Australia's doing quite well, uh, so I wouldn't be uh, be relaxing things just yet.
0: Yeah, but as far as we you know looking at the the curve that everyone looks at, it is looking a bit flatter.
3: It is, it is. Yeah, no, I think I think I think Australia's been very responsible. I actually think the uh, uh, Scott Morrison and the federal government, some of the experts, the premiers, and the the ACTU have all uh, really stepped up and played an important le- leadership role, and um, the Australian people have taken the social distancing very seriously, you know, if it wasn't for a, a couple of cruise ships, we would have been even flatter.
0: Tim Harcourt, the airport economist from the University of New South Wales there. I'm Roderick Chambers and you're listening to On The Money throughout Australia on the Community Radio Network.
4: On The Money, head your bets and stay tuned.
0: Morning, New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian announced a $132 million childcare package. Now, this is going to go towards paying preschool fees for six months and pay childcare workers in council-run centres who are not eligible for the JobKeeper Allowance. Now, this means that Katrina, who's featured in our story following, uh, will be able to keep her children in care. But it's just one example of the chaos running through the childcare sector, which is being replayed all over the nation, as parents keep their children at home and the business model for childcare crumbles. Lani Tyndale has the story.
4: As of Monday this week, childcare has been free thanks to the government's $1.6 billion dollar child care rescue package. However, loopholes in the package are causing the closure of family date pairs and council-run centres, and not all parents and operators are happy with the new funding model. I spoke to Helen Hibbins from the United Workers Union, About the new rescue package. The way that it is
5: funded now is that no parents will be charged any fees uh, and the centres will be given 50% of their usual budget from the federal government. Uh, And in order to get enough money to pay their workforce, they need to be eligible for JobKeeper as well. And the two things together make up a package that the sector can sort of make work. Um, The problem is where um, services aren't eligible for JobKeeper, then what they've got is 50% of their previous budget, but with no capacity anymore to charge parents. Uh, And that's really dire. And there's a number of places that are in that boat.
4: Katrina Shaw works in the finance industry and is classified as an essential worker. Her two young children attend a council-run daycare centre in the western suburbs of Sydney. She was informed by Humberland Council that as of April 20th, the Children's Centre will be suspended.
5: So I think the main thing for the um, council-run services is the fact that they don't have access to the job seeker payments. So the way that it's been explained to us in this letter is they've re- they're receiving 50% of revenue, but they need to cover 100% of their expenses, so it's not viable for them.
4: What are you considering doing if you don't get childcare? Will you have to stop working? What what will happen? Yeah.
5: So, it's a bit of a contradiction, given that the whole purpose of this package was to enable essential workers to work, but given the centre's closed and I've been unable to secure alternative care for my kids, um, I'll probably be forced to take annual leave, particularly or long service leave, and carers leave to cover that period in which the suspension of the childcare services continues.
4: Another sector that is concerned about the child hair rescue package is the family date hair sector. Little Oz's family date hair scheme is a company that provides coordination support for around thirty five family date hair operators across Sydney. I spoke to Manu who who is a supervisor, and Haisha who who is a coordinator at the company.
2: Every family daycare educator has their own set fee. Um, The government has brought in since Monday to pay each family daycare educator 50% of their maximum subsidy rate, which is for family daycare at the moment $11.10 per hour, uh, per child, that's what they were getting a day, and the parents were paying that gap. So if you halve that, that's $5.55 an hour. Each service um, charges a levy, um, so our office charges $1.90 per hour, so then they need to then take that off their $5.55. So if you take that off, that's $3.65 an hour, they're now getting paid. So our educators have to survive from now, Monday the 6th of April, until the 1st of May, with their low income, without the job keeper, and that's if they're even eligible for it, or if they even receive it on the 1st of May. Family
4: Tate has offered flexible hours and so a lot of parents that use family daycares are essential workers.
2: A typical centre will be between 7am to 6pm open where a family daycare can operate at any time.
4: The payments that childcare operators will receive will be based on enrolment figures from the beginning of March. If operators want to access the JobKeeper payments, they have to have had a reduction in income of 30%. Some
5: services enormous drops in attendance and Enrollments, and we've uh, heard a lot from those services who are really in crisis. The issue for centres that had pretty reasonable enrolments before the package was that they are now uh, in the same boat as everybody else, that they only get 50% of their previous budget from the federal government, but they may not be eligible for JobKeeper because in order to access JobKeeper, you have to be an eligible employer who has... Uh, had a significant downturn in your business.
4: Another concern for the family day care operators that we spoke to was that they're only being paid for children that were enrolled in their service at the beginning of March.
2: So any children that were new or increased their days after that, they're not getting paid. And there is also no provision for the educators who were overseas or, you know, who were not working at that period of a time. That's right. So they are not getting paid... And I think we had some on annual leave, some on sick leave, some um, their bookings were low because it just finished school holidays. So some of them are getting paid zero right now, even though they're looking after children every day.
4: And are they, so you have some people who have their service and others are working for free, is that right?
2: Pretty much. Look, our educators have a close relationship with their families, so they. They didn't want to close because these parents needed the care. They're still working. So they were like, what can I do? I can't close. My families need me. So they're staying open.
4: Last Friday, the Minister for Education, Dan Tehan, told 2GB's Ray Hadley that he's working hard to plug the holes in this rescue package. The government has indicated they'll go back to the old funding model once the COVID-19 pandemic is over. Helen Evans from the United Workers' Union says that this period is an opportunity to reassess funding for the child care industry.
5: It's also going to be really interesting to see how the sector adjusts. I think it's an opportunity to have a look at the sector and to say, is is the old system really delivering to our community and is there a better way?
4: That was Helen Evans there, the Director of Early Childhood Education at the United Workers' Union. She hopes to see a reassessment of child care funding even after the new recipe package is no longer needed.
0: And of course, as we said earlier, there was a change to that uh, funding earlier today. That, of course, was Lani Tindale ending that report. You're listening to On The Money Around Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Roderick Chambers.
3: Ride the gravy train with us.
0: Well, you've all found it very, very difficult to get many products since the pandemic began. Hand sanitizers has been almost impossible to find, along with toilet paper, pasta, rice, all sorts of other things, and medical equipment like masks. But the government has put out the call for anyone who might be able to manufacture these scarce but sorely needed necessities. And the Deep Green Biotech Hub at the University of Technology, Sydney, has been working hard with new biotech companies to come up with solutions. I asked Dr Alex Thompson, manager of the hub, to explain what they did there.
1: So the Deep Green Biotech Hub is hosted within the University of Technology Sydney and supported by a research institute called the Climate Change Cluster. We've been around for a couple of years and really our mission is to help kickstart uh, the use of algae and algae biotech in New South Wales. So there's a number of different things we do with that. We run engagement programs, uh, we do a lot of industry and government engagement and one of the, the big things that we do is we run an accelerator program for startups and small businesses called Greenlight.
0: Right and and so part of this is you've been working with a company called Clara Lumen, is that right?
1: Yeah, so Clara Lumen is one of our alumni from our second round of Greenlight, um, and they have a little spin-off company called Purify Co. So Clara Lumen does all sorts of things. They make a lot of um, skincare products and uh, uh, cosmeceuticals, and they're looking at a number of different other products, some of them using algae, um, and one of their spin-off companies, uh, Purify Co, is uh, what we've been helping out with a little bit more recently.
0: And someone's found out, I'm not sure who found this out first, that algae is is a good way to sanitize hands.
1: Yeah, so they've been able to um, develop a hand sanitizer. The hand sanitizer does contain alcohol, so just as any kind of commonly used uh, hand sanitizer would because that's what you want to kill off any of those potential microbes and things that you may have on your hands but they've been able to develop a hand sanitizer that in addition to alcohol also contains um, algae which is really beneficial especially for people who are constantly using hand sanitizer because it's great to help um, protect and moisturize your skin
0: and what is it about algae that's good for us
1: I mean, there's a number of different ways that algae is good for us. So we see algae appearing in different food products because it's a great source of proteins and oils and some are really high in carbohydrates. Some of them have some really uh, great compounds like omega-3s in them, which we, you know, sometimes get from different sort of nutraceuticals or supplements. Um, so there's a bunch of different ways that algae can be good for us, but it can also be really great in skincare products because it has some really great sort of um oily compounds, which are really moisturizing. Um, it's got some great antioxidants in it, which can be really good for our skin as well. Um, so there's a number of different ways that it can be really good for us. And, and I think this application is particularly innovative um, at the moment when, you know, it's, it's a new way of kind of looking at hand sanitizer
0: yeah and of course the government has been asking uh, reaching out to people to to see if they can make any of the products that we're currently a bit short of uh, due to due to the coronavirus. and of course, hand sanitizer everyone knows, very hard to get if you're walking around any supermarket. The problem for Clara Lumen was scaling up, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. So, you know, in addition to there being a whole bunch of products, obviously that are currently being really sought after, obviously Hanson hasn't been one of those, but, you know, spaces and places to make these things is also a little bit tricky at the moment. Um, So we were able to activate one of our um, facilities at UTS called the Biologics Innovation Facility. We call it BIF um, and it is a, a GMP light facility. So these, commonly used for manufacturing anything from pharmaceuticals um, through to things like vaccines, but it's you know completely set up to help support small businesses and startups be able to uh, quickly kind of prototype, test out um, and manufacture different types of products. And in this instance we're able to quickly activate the space so that um, really you know a, a fresh startup with a really innovative idea was able to kind of fast track their process at a time where their product was really sought after.
0: Now, I, I've I've noticed that one of the, the figures we've got here is that they're currently doing 50 litre batches, but after the help that you're going to be able to provide, they're going to be, be able to provide 500 litre batches. Sounds like a pretty big increase.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, with any startup, they're really agile and they're really kind of able to sort of adapt to lots of situations, but um, bef- they were previously making smaller batches because that was the facilities that they had on hand and the facility that we were able to activate for them um, is able to produce much larger batches. So we've been able to work with them to kind of fine-tune their process in in that kind of scaling because obviously going from making 50-litre batches to 500-litres is a little bit you know kind of tricky so we're able to kind of help them out sort of streamline that process and work out some kinks and hopefully go on to manufacture even uh, even bigger batches and make more hand sanitizer for everyone
0: and and how will this feel this sanitizer is it going to be different to what we've uh, been used to
1: yeah i've been using it for a couple of weeks actually and it's really nice um I find typically when you're using hand sanitizer, especially if you're using it a lot, it can be a little bit like sort of drying on your hands. Um, And this one, it has a really nice kind of after feeling where you almost feel like your hands have been moisturised as well, um, which is kind of, it's, it's nice. It's, it adds a little bit of luxury to the
0: process, I think. <laughs> oh, that's good. We can all do with a bit of luxury, I think, at the moment. Uh, what, <laughs> <laughs> what, what about um, the, the actual uh, manufacturing side of it? I, I suppose being a, uh, a sanitising product, you have to be pretty, pretty careful of the environment when you're manufacturing it as well. What sort of things have you got in place to make sure everything is, is very, as pure as possible?
1: So the facility that it's being manufactured in is an incredibly clean facility. Um, as I said, you know, normally it's it's used to manufacture things like vaccines and pharmaceuticals. So um, when we're thinking about facilities that are really clean and really sterile, that's pretty much pretty high up there um so in the in this instance you know it, it adds an extra sort of uh, an extra sort of level of almost um sterility to the process and you know when we're looking at how do we you know sort of scale this obviously you know it, it's, it's an added benefit of being able to use a facility like this
0: and if at uh, the deep green biotech hub have you got other things uh in the pipeline is there anything else you can tell us about
1: Yeah, we do. So we are currently running our third cohort of the Greenlight Accelerator program. And there's some really, really exciting startups that are part of that cohort, um, using algae to make everything from uh, items in fashion right all the way through to food and then looking at new tech applications. So I really, it's a really exciting space to work in because you you kind of are at this cross edge of really innovative science and people who wanting to do really exciting things, but also making products and businesses that are really sort of sustainability facing and really kind of pushing the bounds of um, what we can do in the space to make a whole bunch of industries more sustainable.
0: Yeah, and and I'm just thinking too, uh, I should have asked earlier, where do you get the algae from?
1: Well, it depends uh, what the algae is and what we want to do with it. There's a number of different places that we can get algae from. Um, Some people already grow it here in Australia. Um, We're hoping that we can encourage more people to grow it in Australia because it's really an, an incredibly sustainable uh, resource and, and but we're can, not talking about the
0: stuff that people uh, have in their bathrooms that uh, they haven't cleaned properly uh what's no,
1: what, mean, no.
0: who's growing <laughs> algae how do you do it
1: <laughs> there are a couple of people that already farm algae in australia so really you kind of oh. think yeah yeah like uh, big outdoor ponds and kind of um they can have indoor systems that look like glowing sort of green vats if you um look up there was a project launched by young Henry's uh, earlier this year where they're already growing algae on their brewery floor. So as, as an example of how you could grow algae indoors, but there's certainly people and farmers across Australia who are starting to grow algae here in Australia uh, for applications for everything from food to therapeutics and, um, Supplements and even things like pigments and additives to food to make them uh, to to kind of boost that nutritional profile. And they look a little bit like um, big kind of outdoor pools, or uh, where they're kind of they're moving the algae sort of around. Or they can look like the sort of indoor systems, like a big sort of caged bat. Um, very very sci-fi looking, very cool. Um, <laughs> I, I think them awesome. and there's there's really fantastic applications with those as well.
0: Yes, so you'll have to look out for those. That's Dr Alex Thompson of UTS's Deep Green Biotech Hub speaking with me there. Listening to On The Money Around Australia on the Community Radio Network, I'm Roderick Chambers. And that's about it for us on On The Money this week. Please tune in again next week to find out everything you need to know about finance, business and the economy. Thanks to our producer this week, Lani Tindale. On the money is produced in the studios of Radio 2 SER for the Community Radio Network and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find all of our shows and stories at 2ser.com/on the money. Subscribe to our podcasts. New episodes are coming out every week. Follow us on Twitter. Look for at on the money to SER and find us on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Roderick Chambers. We're going to be back again next week to give you the inside running on all things financial. Please look after yourselves. Thanks for your company.